that hymn was actually um, one of our hymns of the month at uh, Chapel Field a, a month ago. And I particularly love that end of that second verse. Then the golden ears of harvest will their heads before him wave, ripened by his glorious sunshine from the furrows of the grave. I love that line, the furrows of the grave. And I think of, I think of that image of Jesus when he says in, in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it bears no fruit. But if it falls and dies, it will bear much fruit. And I love that the, the grave, the hymn writer recognizes that the grave is a furrow from which the seeds planted by God will grow and bear much fruit. Well, happy Easter to you all. What a joy it is to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we rotate our texts on uh, as we think about what to preach on and think about on Easter. And sometimes we do a theological perspective on the resurrection, sometimes an Old Testament anticipatory vision of the resurrection, and sometimes the historical narrative. And we kind of rotate those through so that we come at it from different angles. And this Sunday, this Easter, we're considering the historical narrative uh, found in John 20, a familiar story in which Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and finds that it's empty. She goes back and tells the disciples, Peter and John run. John outruns him to the tomb, looks in, sees it's empty, but doesn't want to go in. Peter comes barreling through uh, to see what's going on in there, as Peter is prone to do, and, and sees things as they are. Peter's not sure what's going on. John, we're told, believes something has happened. Some, some miraculous thing has happened. Peter's not sure what to make of it. And they return home. Mary Magdalene looks in, sees the angels. They ask her why she's weeping. And she says, they've taken my Lord. At the same time, Jesus approaches Mary and says, woman, why are you weeping? She turns around, supposing him to be the gardener, and says, please, just if you've taken him, just tell me. She's desperate, looking for her Lord and weeping. Just please tell me what you've done with him, and I'll, I'll gladly take the body. He then says her name, Mary. She recognizes him to be the risen Lord, and she grabs onto him. And he says a very peculiar thing, you know, don't cling to me. And then says, now go tell your brethren uh, that I am ascending to my father and to their father. Go tell them that news. And she runs back and tells them that she has seen the risen Lord. And that's the narrative that I want us to take up this morning. Charles Spurgeon has a whole sermon entitled, Supposing Him to be the Gardener. And I'm taking up that thought today. That Mary, when she turns and sees him, thinks he's the gardener. And John gives us details of this story that are meant to teach us, that are meant to connect for us. John is a master writer. He's a master. He's not just, he's not just recording details. Let's see what happened next. Uh, well, Mary thought he was a gardener. You know, that's not what he's doing. He's a master writer. And he's writing the story as he has been doing for 20 chapters writing the story of Jesus, not untrue. He's telling the true stories. This is, this is the way it went down. But the details that he's giving and the even words he's using, the images he's highlighting are given so that they connect the reader 
to other things and in so doing teach us and give us some insight into what is happening here. Again, this is not just a miracle. Oh, wow, somebody came back from the dead, right? As I said earlier, the resurrection is not just Jesus came back from the dead. John knows that. It's something infinitely greater than that. Lazarus came back from the dead. And wow, that was amazing. This is infinitely greater than that. Not a man back from the dead, but a man through death and opening up to us a new creation. That's what's going on here. And that's what John is doing for us as he highlights these details. And so I chose as our Old Testament reading today, Genesis chapter 2, a familiar text to most of us, that we might read it. And I encourage you to go read it again later and watch what connections start to be made for you if we overlay the resurrection of Jesus Christ onto Genesis 2, or if we overlay Genesis 2 onto John chapter 20 and just see how the story at the beginning and now here at the end, the climax of history, for that's what the resurrection is. It is, the, it is what everything has been moving toward since God said, let there be, is this moment. And if we take the story at the beginning and the story at the end, if you will, we see them cinched together by these beautiful themes. So I just want to highlight a couple of them. And the first theme that I want to highlight is that in Christ there is a new creation. John has been doing this for us all along. John has been telling us through the story that in Christ there is a new creation. John has been telling us that in Christ there's a new creation. Remember how John begins his book. Right? John begins this gospel with the words, in the beginning. Okay, In the beginning. John is going to tell the story of the ministry of Jesus in such a way that it connects to the beginning. That it is a retelling or a remaking of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John begins, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And then he goes on to tell us about creation. And all things were made through him. And nothing was made apart from him that was made. And then he tells us about darkness. And there was darkness. And the light came into the darkness. And the darkness did not want the light. So John frames his entire story of Jesus, his entire story of the gospel, in a creation narrative. Telling us, hey reader, as we go through this story, as I tell you this story... What you should be seeing is the birthing of a new creation. That which God intended in Genesis 1 is now bringing itself to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Of course, in between there, we had the plunging of the world into a new darkness. In the beginning, there was darkness. And God's the first thing he says, we're told, is let there be light. And so God casts out the darkness with his light. And then man in his sin plunges the world backwards into darkness and an even deeper darkness than the darkness of first creation. And Jesus Christ comes as the light of the world, the word of God, to speak new light into the world and to cast out the darkness once and for all. That is the story that John is framing for us here. And he has been doing it all through the gospel. Think, for example, of even the story of Jesus' baptism that John tells, and all the gospel writers tell this story, 
But the baptism of Jesus is the same thing. You'll remember a, a picture in the baptism of Jesus that is very much like the beginning of new creation. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and water was over the face, uh, the darkness was over the face of the deep. We have this chaotic water, and then out of the water of initial creation comes the earth, right? Creation comes up out of the water. And then even in the story of Noah's flood, where we have a new creation imagery, the earth is covered with water, and then out of the water up comes the earth, and a dove descends upon Noah's ark with the olive branch, symbolizing that new creation is upon us. And in, John, in Jesus' baptism, Jesus himself goes down under the water. And as he comes up from the water, what of all things the spirit descends in the form of a dove that descends down upon him as the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the story of Jesus' baptism is framed for us in a way that is meant to connect us to the story of creation and new creation in Noah. That in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of creation. In the story of Jesus is the fulfillment of new creation like it was in Noah. And that's what we have here in the resurrection story. What day is it? Right, And even, even in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord had completed his work and therefore he set apart the seventh day because on the seventh day he rested from his labors. And what did Jesus do on the seventh day? Jesus rested from his labors, did he not, in the tomb. On Holy Saturday, Jesus, the word of God, rests in the tomb. But we're told in the very narrative, in the beginning of John chapter 20, now on the first day of the week, Again, this is not John going, what day, hey, you know, asking, Peter, what day was that that uh, Jesus was? Oh, the first, no, John is, John is linking, he's opening our minds to say, it's the first day of a new week. God has rested, but what we have now is a new week, a new first day, the eighth day, as the early church called it. The beginning of a new week, the story of a new creation. When Jesus comes out of that tomb, it's like him coming up out of the water of his baptism and the Spirit descending upon him. This is the new creation that is literally walking out of the tomb. It is a new day, a new week. It is, in fact, a new creation. And when we now fast forward, if you will, to the end of the end, I told my family today as we read Scripture in the morning, that what we celebrate together at Easter is the beginning of the end. This is the end. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The cross is the first fruits of judgment. But this is the beginning of the end. And the end of the end we get when we see in the story of Revelation at the very end. And what do we see there? At the end, God says through, the, through his angel to John, Behold, I am making all things new. And what we celebrate in the end, when we are raised from the dead, is in fact a new creation, where God and man dwell together forevermore. And that has begun here. Remember, Paul will tell his readers, Beloved, in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. 
In fact, it doesn't even say he is. It just says, if any man be in Christ, new creation. Right? Christ is the new creation. And therefore, to be united to him by faith is to be a new creation yourself. For you have died with Christ, as Paul said, and you have been raised with him. So by the Holy Spirit, we already are participating in that new creation. So the first link here between Genesis 2, if you will, and John chapter 20 is the very creation narrative. It's a new day, and we're back in a garden again. Now, the second thing we have, the second link, is that we not only have a new creation, but we have a new Adam, a new man, a new king over all creation, a new bridegroom, is given to us in this beautiful text. Now, even this, John has been getting at through the book. Not only has John been dropping hints throughout of new creation, John's been dropping hints that Jesus is the man. And perhaps most clearly said, not perhaps, most clearly said, it happens, I believe, in John 19, when Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowd. And what day are we on? We're on day six, uh, day five. Day six. Day six, Friday. Right, day six. The day, by the way, that man was created. Right, man was created on day six. And on day six, on Friday, Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out, crown of thorns, bloody and beaten, and says the most amazing words. Right? Behold the man. What an odd thing, what an odd thing to say. Behold the man. But again, in the providence of God, he says more than he knows. In, if he were to say it in Hebrew, you know what it would say? It would say, behold, I don't know the Hebrew for behold, so I have to put that in. <laughs> behold, Adam. Behold, Adam. Behold, Adam. Behold, the man. That what you're looking at here is not merely a man. You are looking at the man. You are looking at man himself. You are looking at the representative of all mankind. And here's what it looks like. A bloody, beaten mess. Because this is what our sin deserves. But John has been letting us know, this isn't just a story about Israel's king. This is a story about Adam. This is a story about the man. This is the story about a new creation. And hence, when the story hits the beginning of the end, we're back in a garden. And who is there? Adam. And where has he come from? The dust of the earth. Right? Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. He's laying in a tomb. But like Adam, the life-giving spirit has been breathed into his nostrils. And he is a living being now. And a life-giving spirit. And he comes forth from the dust of the earth. And who does he find? The one he calls woman. It's interesting, he doesn't at first say to her, hey, Mary, what are you, what's wrong? He says to her, woman, what's bothering you? Woman, what's wrong? And again, John is just linking for us the entire story that here comes Mary Magdalene, a representative now of the church, a representative of his bride, looking for him. And I, I encourage you, I was doing some reading last night, actually, and I'm not going this direction, but it's really 
beautiful to look at is overlay the Song of Solomon onto this story. And there's some beautiful things that just pop out in Mary Magdalene, in her looking for her beloved and her beloved telling her, turn to me. And it's very interesting that John puts in that little detail that Mary turns to see the gardener, you know, himself. And she comes to look for him who was laying in his bed of spices and all kinds of beautiful imagery in the Song of Solomon that really do. And again, just overlay it with this story in John chapter 20 and it's beautiful. But the reason I mention that is because it's not just Mary who happens to be the odd person who comes to find him, but it's Mary who comes as a representative of the bride of Christ. Now, now you'll remember that when we thought about and I can't remember if it was this year or years past, but it's certain, certainly I've said it multiple times, that when we think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her giving birth to the Lord, she is, if you will, the, the concentration of everything Israel was supposed to be, the virgin bride of God, who's obedient, who when God says this is what's going to happen, she says, yes, Lord, let it be of me. I mean, she and she gives birth to Messiah for the sake of the world, right? Mary is everything that Israel was supposed to be. But Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene represents, in some ways, everything the church is, right? At least we believe her to be a former prostitute, right? A woman who was looking for love, if you will, in all the wrong places, right? She's searching for love, but then Jesus approaches her, casts out seven demons from her, and brings her to himself. She is, she herself is not the bride of Christ, and you know that, that the, the, the Gnostic Gospels say this kind of thing, that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. They're off on that. But they're onto something. They just don't know what to do with it. And so they go into terrible places. But Mary Magdalene comes here to the garden as the representative of the bride of Christ. A beleaguered bride, but a bride desperate for her beloved. And she knows it's Jesus and she wants to find him, but he's gone. And where does the bride and here we're jumping, but I've spoken about this before, but just another connection to, to uh, Genesis chapter 2. Where does the bride of Christ come from? And the answer is it comes from the wounded side of Jesus. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good for man to be alone, and, and he's looking among all the animals, and there's not, not, nothing here found worthy, but... But God says, okay, it's not good for you to be alone. I'll give you a bride. And what does he do? He doesn't just say, okay, let me create something else from the dust. Here, here, let me watch this. And this is Mary. He puts Adam to sleep, of all things, in the garden. And cuts him open. Wounds him. And from his wounded side, creates and forms Eve, who is his body. Right? It's his rib that forms her. And we have just seen our Lord wounded in the side and buried in the ground, put to sleep. And from his wounded side, a bride is given to him. And Mary Magdalene representing that bride, not completing that bride, to be sure, comes in and meets him. And it's interesting, too, that Jesus gives her a name. Now, she has a name. But it's interesting because, again, in Genesis chapter 2, names have something to, they're there in that in chapter 2, right? Jesus, or Jesus, Adam, see, Adam names all the animals. He names all the animals, whatever he calls them, they will be. And then after the fall, still in the garden, Adam names 
Eve. And here again, John is just giving us these little points of connection to show us what is happening here. Something grand and beautiful is happening here, right? The name giver is there. The gardener, Mary is not wrong. She just doesn't know the full extent of it. But what she turns to see is in fact the gardener. Because that's what Adam was called to be. Adam was the gardener. Adam was the one who set up in the garden to tend the garden for the glory of God. And this is what Jesus is. Jesus comes to fulfill the role of Adam. He is the new Adam who comes to bring order and restoration and life and light back to the garden. And he comes and speaks to his bride and calls her by name as Adam does to Eve. So John is helping us to see this event is the story of a new creation. This story is the story of a new Adam, a new mankind, and a new marriage, a new bride and bridegroom. And then finally, it's the story of a new mandate. Now, Mary does. We, we, we get it. We get it, right? Mary turns, and when she sees, it's Rabboni. When she sees, it's her beloved. When she sees, it's her Lord. She does what we might all do. She clings to him. And then again, Jesus says these peculiar words, which again, at first seemed like a rebuke. We've had to deal with this in, in the life and ministry of Jesus before. You know, Even in this gospel, as Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, comes to him at the wedding at Cana and says, hey, they're out of wine. He says, woman, what's this have to do with me? Like, Whoa. But this is not how Jesus means it. Jesus is not rebuking Mary. And yet at the same time, he is teaching her. What is he teaching her? Mary wants to cling to Jesus, and he says, do not cling to me. That is, the relationship that I have with you cannot remain here. This is not the extent of the relationship. And he commissions her. In some sense, she's the first apostle. She's the first apostle means sent one. She's the first sent one because he tells her, go and tell. She wants to cling. He tells her, you cannot go. I must go and you must go. There's work to be done. We cannot linger here is the point. That is to say, Jesus did not come to stay in the garden. Nor is the church to stay in the garden. But rather he sends her out and he himself will go out into the world. And he says, go tell them, I must ascend to my father and to your father. Jesus commissions uh, Mary to go and to tell. And we know that when he gets with the disciples, he's going to tell them the same thing. They want him to stay. And he says, I must go. And it's good for you that I go. And you must go and you must tell. That is, the church is on mission in light of the resurrection. Yes, clinging to the physical Jesus is a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. But believe it or not, there's something even better. And Jesus is going and he tells Mary, representing his bride here, I think, I must go prepare a place for you. Yes, the wedding is ready, right? Like, like She's like the, the, the virgin who had her oil lamp ready. She's looking for the coming bridegroom and here he is. But he tells her, but I must go now. I must go and I will prepare a place for you. And in the meantime, you all go. 
So we have been given mission. And at the end of the age, again, at the end of the end, in the story of Revelation, John is taken up onto a mountain, a very high mountain. And the elder says to him, would you like to see the bride? And he says, oh, I'd love to. And in this one moment in John chapter 21, he sees the new city, the new creation, the new bride descend from heaven and abide. And we're told that in that holy city, there is no temple. We don't need a temple because God and the lamb dwell with his people face to face. That's what we're moving toward. And so he tells Mary, don't cling to me. As good as this is, this is not as good as it gets. And I've got to go. And I've got to prepare a place for you. Just as Adam was given a commission to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, to tend the garden, so Jesus Christ gives his church now a mission. Go into all nations making disciples of them, baptizing them, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The good news of the resurrection for us, the church who are on mission, is that though he has ascended to the Father, he is with us even to the end of the age. For he who was raised from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, has become a life-giving spirit. And his spirit abides with us even unto the end of the age. So brothers and sisters, as we celebrate the resurrection today, we don't just celebrate an amazing miracle. We celebrate the first fruits from the dead. We celebrate the beginning of new creation. New creation is not just something that's down the road one day, a sort of an apocalyptic pipe dream but it has already begun. That's what John is telling you. It has already begun. And by the Holy Spirit, you already are participating in it. Therefore, as Mark read in our call to worship this morning, what does Paul say? Therefore, be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Because you know that new creation has begun in Christ and you are already enjoying it. Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. You're on mission knowing that your bridegroom is in heaven preparing a place for you. May that be the courage. May that be the life that comes to us through the good news of the resurrection this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, the gardener, who indeed has come not only to cultivate the garden, but to extend that life-giving cultivation to all the world and to every nation. And we thank you that we are the fruit of it, that from the furrow of the grave came that life-giving grain of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would now set us on mission that we might be courageous, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For we know that even now we are participating in the new creation. And the day will certainly come when the bridegroom returns to take us home. Until that day, keep us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.